Good morning, New Branch family. It is good to be with you this morning and to have the privilege to share God's word with you this morning. It's been a good time of worship already, and now we're looking forward to continuing to worship through God's word. This morning, we will continue on in the book of Genesis, and we'll look at the entirety of chapter 26 together. So you can go ahead and turn over to Genesis chapter 26. In a moment, we'll read from there. Uh, as we begin our time, let me uh, quote to you from the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon said this, Jesus is mighty to save, the best proof of which lies in the fact that he saved you. Now, I think all of us would hear that and say, Amen. Amen to that. The, the Lord God has been gracious to us and he has saved us. Yet at the same time, why are we so often fearful to share the gospel with others? Why is it that often we're fearful to share the gospel with others when we realize the miraculous work of God in saving us, but then we are often fearful to take that message and to share it with others? Can I be completely transparent with you this morning? Just recently, just several weeks ago, as this whole pandemic situation was kicking off in our nation and we were beginning to have social distancing and have shelter-in-place orders handed out, I was having a conversation with someone and I had the perfect gospel opportunity. I had the perfect gospel opportunity. I knew this person was not a believer. Uh, it was very clear from our conversation. And in the midst of this conversation about the surrounding circumstances that we were experiencing that were common to all of us, this person said, uh, it just reminds us that we are not in control. And they were absolutely right about that. And in my mind, in that moment, I thought, and I know who is in control. But I'm ashamed to say that I did not take that gospel opportunity. I did not seize that moment and share the good news of Jesus Christ and about our sovereign God who is in control of all things and is bringing everything to its rightful conclusion. In that moment, I had thoughts like, what if I don't say the best thing? My thoughts weren't so much about, I don't know what to say at all. I just thought, what if I don't say the best thing for this moment, for this time? I had thoughts like, what if, I don't, what if they don't like what I say? What if it just makes them angry? I had thoughts like, what if they think I'm crazy? Have you ever been there? Have you been there? Have you had moments like that? Have you had those moments in the midst of those gospel opportunities where you were overtaken by fear, and instead of seizing that opportunity and sharing the glories of God, you instead were silent? 1 Corinthians 1.18, the Apostle Paul says, The gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In the passage before us this morning in Genesis 26, what I want us to see is that as God's people, we have no reason to fear and that God is also gracious in our failings. That as God's people, we have no reason for fear and that even in our failings, God is gracious. So with that in mind, let's turn our attention to Genesis 26. I'm not going to read to you the entirety of the chapter right now. We'll focus on two sections of uh, this chapter, and then we'll go back through it together. So let's read verses 1 through 5, and then verses 12 through 16 together. So this is God's word, Genesis 26, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar. 
and to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I will tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. And I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and I will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Now let's go down to verse 12. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. We confess now that we often don't cherish it like we should. Father, we confess that it truly is, as the disciples said to Jesus, the very words of life. It is what we need. So, Father, we ask now that as we turn our attention to it, that you would bless not only the reading of it, but the preaching of it. Father, that you'd even bless it over a digital platform. Uh, Although we can't be together in person, that you'd bless this, uh, this time together as we study God's word. Lord, that you would use it. Uh, to call those who don't know you to yourself, that they would be saved. Father, that you would use it to further along the saints, those who are yours in their sanctification, making them more like your son, Jesus. Father, we pray that you would use it to um, instill in us a great confidence in you and in your word, and that that fear would evaporate uh, as our faith increases. Father, that as we walk away from our time together this morning, that your word would continue to be at work in us, producing confidence, boldness, humility, graciousness, and that we would go and tell others of your glory and of your fame and of your renown. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, as we begin our time here in Genesis 26, there's three things, three main things that I want you to see in this passage. The first thing that we'll look at is uh, focused there in verses 1 through 11 is God doesn't need our help. God doesn't need our help. The second thing that I want you to see is God's grace in our failings. That'll be in the middle of chapter 26. God's grace in our failings, verses 12 through 16. And then last, we're going to look at the, the fact that God's purposes prevail, always. God's purposes prevail. That's verses 17 through 33. All right, well, let's begin with the fact that God does not need our help. We see that here in verses 1 through 11. Here in verses 1 through 6 that we just read a moment ago, we're told that, again, there's a famine in the land. And we know that through these trials, there will be the testing of faith. And it said that Isaac uh, was told, he went to Gerar, uh, to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, and that the Lord appeared to him and told Isaac, do not go down to Egypt. So Isaac here is going to be tested. Will he obey the Lord? And he, in fact, does. He does not go to Egypt 
for shelter from this famine, to have provision. But he dwells in the land of which God tells him. He sojourns in that land, uh, is what we see there in verse 3. And then notice this. God reassures him of this. He calls him to this. He calls him to trust him. And he reassures him of his promises. This is how the Lord acts. This is what faith is. It is responding to the promises of God. And so here we see in verse 4, he tells him uh, in verse 3 and 4 to sojourn in the land and that he will bless him and his offspring and he'll give them of these lands. And he reminds him of the oath that he swore to his father Abraham. Then in verse 4 he says, I'll multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven. That should remind you of the promise that God made to Abraham. This is what he's telling him. He's reminding Isaac of it and in reminding us as well. And he says, I'll give your offspring these lands. And in your offspring, all nations of the earth shall be blessed. And then notice this. He mentions the fact that Abraham's faith in God that resulted in the fruit of obedience is going to be a blessing to them as well. That Abraham's obedience is a blessing to his descendants. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And so here... What we're seeing is that Isaac is tested. He's told not to go to Egypt. He doesn't do it. He, he obeys the Lord. And then we're going to see that Isaac runs into some trouble. There's a sort of partial obedience that's going on here, a, a, a weakness of faith that fear will move in uh, and will cause him to seek to help the Lord, as it were. So let's look at verses 6 through 12 or 6 through 11, and that's what we'll see. So in verse 6, it says, Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, this should sound reminiscent to his experience of his father, he said, she is my sister, for he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. And so Isaac is obedient in that he stays in the land that the Lord tells him, but in the midst that he's confronted, when those ask him about Rebekah, his wife, he says that it's his sister. He lies about who it is. Fear overtakes him, diminishes his faith, and he lies. It seems here that, that these promises that God will establish them, that God will give them the blessing of offspring, and that it will be fruitful and, and be established and be well provided for and even be a blessing to others, Isaac thinks that maybe God needs a little bit of help. Maybe I should lie in this moment and it will help. It will prevent me from being killed. This is really what the fear is all about. It will prevent them from killing me to seek to take my wife. I'll just tell them that she's not my wife. She's my sister. Now, Isaac's fear is not completely without warrant, is it? We only need to think no further than who will come after him, King David and Bathsheba and Uriah. Uh, that David, in fact, does orchestrate the murder of Uriah because he has eyes for Bathsheba. And so his fear is not unwarranted. He's here in a foreign land, and he's fearful that he will be killed, and he's forgetting the promise that God has made to him, and he's thinking, well, I'll help God out a little bit, and I'll lie in this way. And so we can actually see how this plays out. In verse 8, it says, When he'd been there a long time, Abimelech saw, Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, looked out of the window and he saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. And Abimelech, verse 9, called to Isaac and said, Behold, she uh, is your wife. How could you say she is my sister? So he's found out. Isaac 
is seen. And, and here we see this play on words with Isaac's name meaning laughter, with Sarah laughing when they're promised Isaac. We saw earlier uh, with the contention, the strife that would be between Ishmael and Isaac, that when Isaac was a young toddler, that Ishmael was laughing, that it's used this word. And here, laughing is used again. The ESV translates this rightly. And in this case, what it's showing is that it's very clear to Abimelech that their interaction with one another, that's not how brothers and sisters act. This is not the way brothers and sisters act. The way that they are uh, interacting with one another is absolutely clear to Abimelech. This is not your sister. This is your wife. And he calls him out on it. There in verse 9, he says, How could you say she's my sister? And Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. And Abimelech said, What is it that what is this that you have done to us? Notice that. See, Isaac's thinking about him. He says, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. He's only thinking about him, which is what happens all the time when we sin, is it not? We're thinking about us. We're thinking about what we want, our desires what it is that we need to accomplish, what it is that we need to grasp and take hold of. And so look at what happens. Abimelech says, what is this that you've done to us? Abimelech is reminding him that sin never happens in a vacuum, that sin always has a ripple effect, that sin always leaves a wake in its path. And so many others get caught up in that. That Isaac's sin was in fact uh, very potentially going to cause others to sin because they would have thought that this was just his sister. And that's what Abimelech is pointing out here. He says, what is this that you've done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and, would have, and you would have brought guilt upon us. Your sin could have caused others to sin unknowingly. And so Abimelech calls him out. In verse 11, it says, So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. More than likely, this Abimelech here is not the same Abimelech that that Isaac's father Abraham interacted with is probably this same Abimelech's son. Much like Pharaoh's in Egypt went by the same title, more than likely that's what we have here. We'll see some repeated titles at the end of the chapter as well. And that's probably what's happening here. And it seems like this Abimelech was a man of honor just like his forefathers were as well. And so here he's, he's calling out Isaac and saying, hey, your sin, why did you lie to us? And your sin could have led to more Sin. Well, friends, before we move on from this passage, are we not too tempted often to help God out? Are you and I not, not also tempted to help God out? Uh, let's focus with what we began the sermon with, thinking about evangelism and our fear in evangelism, that, that we have the promises of God. Here Isaac is worried about his life, and God has reassured him prior to this incident that he would be fruitful and multiply, that he would have much offspring, that he would be established in the lands, and that they would be a blessing to other nations. He has that promise. But friends, we can go further back than that. And Isaac himself was spared at that moment when a lamb or a ram was provided in the thicket there on the mountain with his father. That there was a substitute provided and that Isaac was spared. So Isaac has this faithfulness of God to lean back on. But even in the midst of that, he becomes fearful and he lets fear overtake him. Do you and I not fall prey to the very same thing? That this God who spared not his own son so that we 
could be called children of God so that we could be brought into the covenant family, that, that Christ came and lived a perfect life, died an atoning death for you and I so that we could be saved, that miracle of salvation that we were talking about from that quote from Charles Spurgeon, that, that we know these things, yet at the same time we often become fearful and we are tempted to help God. The commission that we have as God's people is very clear. It's there in Matthew chapter 28 that we are to go into all nations. This is what our Lord told us, to make disciples and to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them to obey all that he commanded. Yet we're often tempted to help God out in our evangelism. As by way of an example, let me just point you to something in the 1950s, in the late 1950s, there was a pamphlet that was written, and it was entitled, Soul Winning Made Easy. Now that seems crazy, doesn't the title itself? I didn't know there was such a thing as a miracle made easy. Soul winning made easy. Conversion itself is a, is a miracle. And in this pamphlet entitled, Soul Winning Made Easy, listen to some of the instructions from that pamphlet under the heading, here was the heading, How to press for the decision. How to press for the decision. This is how the pamphlet reads. Lay your hand firmly on the subject's shoulder or arm, and with a semi-commanding tone of voice, say to him, bow your head with me. Do not look at him when you say this, but bow your head first, and out of the corner of the eye you will see him hesitate at first. Then, as his resistance crumbles, his head will come down. Your hand on his shoulder will feel the relaxation and you will know that his heart yields. Now listen to this. Bowing your head first causes terrific psychological pressure. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, hopefully when we read something like that, we cringe. Hopefully we would recognize the manipulation tactics that are there at play of trying to cause tremendous psychological pressure to get someone to make a decision as this, uh, how to press someone for a decision or make a decision as this pamphlet read. Yet, at the same time, we can fall prey to temptations to help God out in our evangelism. We can fall to the temptation of, of trying to make the gospel more palatable to people by not talking about judgment. Let's just not talk about judgment at all. Let's, let's avoid that. Let's just only focus on what we think they want to hear. We can fall prey to the same thing by, by not talking about sin and, and repentance. Let's just avoid sin and repentance and make it sound like the gospel is just God's plan to give you the life you always wanted. We, too, can manipulate. We may not seek to uh, force great psychological pressure on someone by bowing our head or, and trying to lead them to do something through some motions or firmly placing our hand on their shoulder, but we could fall prey to, to seeking to manipulate people's emotions to elicit some sort of uh, response and get them to make some sort of decision in the moment. Or, because of fear, we may not share the gospel at all. Or maybe we see people make a decision, so to speak, and say that they are now a Christian, and we just forego the last of that great commission, teach them to obey all that Christ commanded, and then just let them continue to live life however they want, even though they claim to be a Christian. All of these things would be egregious and wrong, and we are tempted to do all those things. Brothers and sisters in the church, when we do that, not only are we sinning out of fear and lack of confidence in the gospel, that is the power of God unto salvation. 
we also are putting others at great risk. More than likely, if you've shared the gospel much with people and interacted with others who claim to be Christians, you have come into contact with those who seem to have no fruit of the gospel at work in their lives. But they say, yes, I I prayed some prayer, walked some aisle, did something years ago in my life, and and it has no effect or bearing on their life right now. Yet, they've almost become inoculated to the gospel, some say. They've heard enough of it to think that they know it and that they have been saved, but they're still lost. It's almost like they're doubly lost at this point. Friends, our, our sin and our neglect in that area is, has great ramifications on others, and it leads to great effects in their life as well. We must have confidence in God's promises We must have confidence in God's plan. And what we're seeing in this passage is it's God's will done God's way. It's not God's will done our way. Let us us be creative with it and and work here like Isaac seems to be doing in this passage. Well, if I lie, I can help God along and make sure his promises come to pass. No, God doesn't need our help. God chooses to use us as his instruments for his glory, and that is a great thing, and as a privilege to be used by God, but he doesn't need our creativity. He doesn't need our help. It is God's will done God's way. And God's way is faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We are to proclaim the gospel, and we are to proclaim the whole gospel, and we are to proclaim it robustly. And when those uh, come to faith and repentance in Christ, we are to teach them to obey all that he commanded. That, that baptism and that is when they come to tell the church that they are a believer, that's not the finish line. That's the starting line where there is a whole life of discipleship and following Christ ahead of them. Brothers and sisters in the church, let us not be fearful. Let us not become creative and seek to change and and help God out a little bit. Let us do God's will God's way. Well, let's, let's move on to the next thing. What we see is God's grace in our failures. Because the reality is, as we've talked about this just now, we're probably convicted to some extent. Or maybe we have failed to share the gospel, or maybe we've failed to share the whole gospel. But what we see is that God is gracious. God is gracious. Look at verses 12 through 16. We see there that that Isaac is confronted there in 10 and 11. And then in 12, it tells us this, And Isaac sowed in that land, and he reaped in the same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him, and the man became rich. And he gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants. So the Philistines envied him. And it tells us there that we'll see in the next passage. Now the Philistines had stopped up and filled with earth the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And so he gained, he had such rich blessing. Look at verse 16. And Abimelech said to him, go away from us for you're much mightier than we. He settled here in this land and they've, he's become mighty. It says really he sowed in that land and that year and he reaped a hundredfold that God richly blessed Isaac that he's making good on this promise that he is going to establish them and make of them a great nation and a blessing to other nations. And so here we see that God is gracious even in the midst of of Isaac's failures. Even in the midst of Isaac's failings, God is still gracious and God still makes good on his promise. Brothers and sisters, let that encourage us that when we fail... As God's people, we still rely on his mercy. 
That, that what we are to do is that when we see our sins, when we see our failures, we are to walk in repentance. We're to recognize that. We're to be humble. And we are to repent of that, to turn from that, and to cling to God's grace. Not to earn favor. We can't. We've been given favor in Christ Jesus. He is why we've been accepted by God. Not through our own efforts or uh, our own morality, but through Christ's work on our behalf. And so we are to walk in repentance. And walking repentance means this. It means that we're honest about our sin and our need for grace. Brothers and sisters, when we're honest about our sin, we're honest about our need for grace, we make much of the gospel. We make much of the gospel. And we show that even in our failures, we do not nullify the grace of God, but his grace superabounds. That's good news. So often when we fail as Christians, we, we act like we need to cover that up, especially before the watching world. When we do that, when we seek to cover it up in our pride, when we, when we seek to uh, make excuses for our sin, when we're not honest about our sin, when we don't walk in humble repentance and cling to God's grace, we only reinforce the false notions that those around us have, that they think that Christianity is only for perfect people, for good people, for people who are morally upright, or for people who have their actions cleaned up that is not what Christianity is Richard Sibbs the Puritan said this there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us that's what we're seeing here in this passage of God's grace and our failures that there is in fact more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us I wonder if you're watching this worship service this morning you're listening, and maybe you are under the impression that, that Christianity is just for people who are good. It's just for those who are moral. It's just for those who have their lives cleaned up. Can I just tell you that nothing could be further from the truth? And if someone's giving you that oppression, I am sorry. Can I tell you that, that Christians are people who are broken, sinful, and desperate for a Savior? That as one hymn writer wrote, the only thing that we bring to God is the very sins of which we need to be redeemed from. As Christians, we brought nothing to the table when we came to God and asked Him for salvation. We didn't bring our, our good works. We didn't bring our merits. We didn't bring our, our cleaned up life. What we brought is simply brokenness. That, that all you need to become a Christian is to be able to recognize your need. And, and so, so nothing could be further from the truth. Christianity is not for people who have it all together. Christians are people who realize they couldn't save themselves and they couldn't make things right. They couldn't fix the mess that they're in through their sin and through their rebellion. That only God could do that through Christ Jesus and they could only receive that as a gift from God. This morning, do you recognize your need? Do you recognize that, that this world is broken? We're seeing that right now during this pandemic. We're, we see it all the time, even before the pandemic. is evident everywhere. Once we open our eyes and we can see brokenness and we see the need that things just aren't the way they're supposed to be and things are not right. And, and we don't even have to look out at the world, but we can look within our own heart and we see that things are not right even with us that we sin against people, that we say that we love, that, that, we, that we seek only our own self-interest, and even though that we, we desire to seek the interest of others, we continue to seek our own self-interest, and we twist things, and, and that we're just broken and sinful. 
It's because we've rebelled against a holy God. And when we're separated from this God that we're meant to be in fellowship with, it separates us from one another as well. That, that sin always affects our relationships. And that we need salvation and we can't save ourselves, but God sent his son who lived a perfect life, never sinned against anyone, always honored God the Father and loved his neighbor around him, yet went to the cross and took the sinner's punishment and was cursed for us, is what it says in Galatians, so that we might know the blessing that he earned through his perfect life. This, this is salvation. This is the gift that the Bible talks about, that the wages of sin were all sinners is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so that he came and he died and he was raised on the third day, victorious over the sin that enslaves us, this death that awaits us, and offers salvation to any who would look to him in faith and repentance. If you're listening this morning and you've never done that, maybe you've been in church all your life, maybe, maybe you're, you're in our church, or maybe you've just come across this feed or someone's invited you to watch it, have you looked to Christ for salvation? Have you stopped trying to save yourself through your moral good works, through your efforts? Have you stopped trying to save yourself through just saying, ah, oh, none of that matters, casting it all off and just forging your own path of, of creating your own morality? Are you, are you weary of that? Are you tired of that? Would you look to Christ and be saved? Trust the only one, the king who came and laid down his life for you as a king worth living for and following and trusting. Brothers and sisters in the church, what does it look like for God to bless his people today? Here we see that, that God is, is establishing through Isaac, through Abraham, through Isaac, through this line, a, a nation. He's blessing them with possessions and, and with greatness, with, with wealth and riches. What does it look like for God to bless his people today, for God to bless the church? I love Psalm 67, 1 through 2. The whole psalm's great. Let me just read to you the, the first two verses. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, that your saving power among the nations. See, that's just it. That God's blessing on his people is not meant for the glory of his people. That God's blessing on his people is meant for his glory and so that all nations and all the world would know of his saving might, his saving power, and his greatness. Brothers and sisters in the church, I believe that we should pray and ask that God would bless us as his church. That he would bless us with, the, with what we need, the provision we need for ministry, to do the ministry. That he would bless us with fruit in ministry, and so that the gospel would go to all nations. That God, would you, would you bless us with what we need to do what you called us to do, not for our glory. And, and brothers and sisters, there's great temptation there that when the Lord blesses us that we think is for our glory and for us, but that it would be for the purpose of the gospel going forward and for God's glory that all nations would know of his saving power. We should pray that God would give blessing to the church and I don't just mean money at all we need we need the provisions we need to do the ministry he's called us to do that's not what I'm talking about I'm talking about that God would give fruit 
to our ministry, to the word that's being preached week in and week out, to the word that is, that is being reverberated through the life of our base groups as we share God's word with one another and pray for one another and encourage one another, to the word that goes through our men's and our women's Bible studies, to the gospel proclamation that goes to a neighbor, a co-worker, that God would bless that and that he would add to the number of the church and that more and more sons and daughters would come to saving faith and that we would be faithful to teach them all that Christ commanded and that they would all be spurred on toward maturity in Christ, that God would bless the ministry of the church for his namesake, that there would be more and more sons and daughters for his glory and image bearers who look more and more like his son Jesus Christ. That's what I'm talking about. That God would meet our practical needs? Absolutely. But that God would give fruit to our ministry for his glory. God's grace in the midst of our failings. And then last, what I want you to see is that God's purposes prevail. God's purposes prevail always. And that's what we see in the last half of this chapter. We see here, as we ended there in verse 16, we see that God blessed Isaac and that Abimelech, they, they wanted Isaac to go away. They envied Isaac and the blessing that he had. So in verse 17, it says that Isaac departed from there, and he camped in the valley of Gerar. And he settled there, and Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when, the, when Isaac's servants dug, this is verse 19, in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So they, kept, they called the name of the well Isaac. So we see here that, that as we were given this insight earlier there in verse 15, that the wells had been filled in after the death of Abraham as Isaac moved and they dug new wells, and they uncovered these wells that had been filled back in and found springs of water. Once again, this quarrel from the men of Gerar. They are envious of it, and they say, this is our water. So Isaac names the first well Isaac. And um, what that name literally means is it means that there is, well, I lost it in my notes, but it means that there is contention, that they contended with him over it. So there's contention there. And then next, what do we see? We see that he dug another well, and this is verse 21, and they quarreled with him over it, so he named it Sitna, which means strife, that there was strife over this and so uh, because of the quarreling. And so he came to uh, a place called Rehoboth, and, and he dug another well there, and he named it Rehoboth. Why? Because the Lord had made room for them. That's what Rehoboth means. It means room. He says, for now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. And so here's something I want you to notice of what's going on. That right now, as, as there is this frustration, they, they uncover a well, find a spring, they become contentious over it, they move to another but what's going on? That, that God's purposes still prevail. That although they seek to frustrate what Isaac is doing, God's purpose will prevail and God's purposes and plans will go forward no matter what. Reminds us of what it says in Proverbs 19 that uh, man has plans in his mind, but it's the purposes of the Lord that will stand. God's purposes will stand and will prevail. 
As I read this passage, I was thinking of Acts, the parallels that I I see in the book of Acts with the New Testament church. There there are many parallels here. Uh, As we move forward, we'll we'll get to them in just a second. As we move forward there in verse 26, notice what happens. It says that Abimelech went out from Gerar uh, with Uzzah and his advisor and Phicol, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to him, why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and you have sent me away from you? You can remember, they sent him away. Verse 28, they said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. They say, that's clear that, that you've been blessed so greatly that even with the resistance, that you continue to have your needs met and provided for. God's getting the glory here. He says it's clear that God is with you. Remember what we said earlier, God's blessings are for on his people are intended for his glory. And here God is getting that glory. We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let, let there be swarm a pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do no harm with us just as we have not touched you and have done nothing but good to you and have sent you away in peace. There's another verse there in Proverbs 19 that talks about uh, that it is a good on a man to overlook an offense. It seems that Isaac is practicing that here, overlooking the offense of them sending him away, treating him somewhat harshly, but they're seeking this, this peace with him. And so in verse 30 it says, So he made them a feast. Isaac hosts them. They ate and they drank, and in the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And so Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed in peace. And that same day Isaac's servants came and told them and told him about the well that they had dug, and said to him, We have found water, and he called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. And that Sheba means oath, where Isaac made an oath with them. So here we see God's provision for him. We see that even in the midst of resistance, God's purposes prevail. God's plans continue to go forward and others recognize it. Here we see that Isaac is being a blessing to the nations. They, they come and say, it's clear that God is with you and we want a covenant with you. We want to make an oath with you. And so Isaac does that and the very promise that was here at the beginning of the chapter that they would be a blessing to other nations, that here we're seeing that come to pass, that he is a blessing to others as well. Now I think about this and the parallels that I notice in the book of Acts. Let's just point out briefly a few of those. In Acts 3 through 5, I'll just focus on those verses. I'd encourage you to go and read them later, but there in the beginning of Acts 3, we see that as Peter and John are going uh, to uh, the temple that there there's a man by the gate named Beautiful and uh, he is crippled and he's begging and Peter says to him silver and gold have I none but what I do have I give to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ stand up and walk and the man is healed and this gathers a lot of attention they're preaching the gospel there in the end of chapter 3 and the tension that is gathered they're arrested there in chapter 4 and they're brought before the council And there in chapter 4, as they're brought before the council, they're arrested for preaching the resurrected Christ. That's what we're told. And they're put on trial. And there, when they're put on trial, it says that those in the council recognize that these men have been with Jesus. They spent so much time with Jesus, they look like him, they talk like him, they act like him. It reminds us of, of what we see here of Abimelech recognizing that the Lord is with Isaac. And so here we're seeing that they recognize that these men have been with Jesus. 
And the council seems to be more upset at their preaching than their good deeds. Their preaching of the word than their good deeds. It seems to be do good, but don't preach Jesus. That seems to be their, their call to them. And so what they do there is they threaten them. And they threaten them and they release them. Now what I've always been struck by is what happens next. When they're released, what do they do? They pray. Now, you just you got to remember, they've been arrested, they've been threatened, and they've been released. And the threat is, don't let this happen again. Don't preach Jesus any longer. And then they pray. Now, if it was you and I, what, what would you pray? I know what I probably would pray. God, please don't let that happen again. Please don't let me get arrested again. That's not what they pray at all, though. What do they pray? They pray for boldness. They pray for boldness. They, they don't, what do they ask God? They don't ask him to protect them. They don't say, don't let this happen again. No, they pray for boldness. Uh, Acts 4, verse 29, look upon their threats and grant your servants to speak your word with all boldness. Isn't that amazing? Well, God, don't, don't let fear erode our faith. You look upon their threats. You're sovereign. That's what they recognized in that prayer. Grant us to speak the truth with all boldness. Grant us to speak your word with all boldness. And then what happens in Acts 5? They continue to preach the gospel. They're arrested. They're beaten this time, not just threatened. And they walk away and they rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Acts 5, 42. Notice what happens though. Get this. They did not cease teaching. They did not cease teaching. What did they teach? They did not cease teaching that Jesus is the Christ. You see that? Notice the, the parallels between Jacob. They find a well. They run off from that well. They, they need provision. They, they dig again. They find another well. They run off. Eventually they recognize a provision, and there's an oath made, and there's room for them, and there's water for them. God's purposes will still go forward. His purpose is to establish Jacob I mean, to establish Isaac, sorry, I've been saying Jacob, to establish Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and on down through Jacob, to establish them as his people, to make them fruitful and multiply. What was God's purposes for his people here in the New Testament church? That his word would go to all nations. Now, notice what's happening. As they are seeking to frustrate the plans and as they are threatening them, do not preach any longer. They pray for boldness. They continue to preach. They're arrested. They're beaten. And what happens? It says they did not cease teaching that Jesus is the Christ. And then I want you to notice something in Acts 6. That, that is the very end of Acts 5, Acts 4, 5.42, that they didn't cease to preach that Jesus is Christ. And what does Acts 6, 1 say, the very next verse? It says this, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. So here we have it. Here we have frustration, obstacle, persecution for God's people. But even in the midst of it, God's purposes prevail. The gospel is continuing to be preached. And more and more are coming to know Jesus as the Christ. They're coming to know him as their Savior. And the church is growing there's persecution, but the word of God continues to spread. How encouraging is that for us as a church to think about any frustrations we meet? I'm praying that the frustration we know right now 
It's not persecution, but it's this pandemic that's preventing us from meeting. I'm praying that this frustration that we know will cause the word of God to spread and that more sons and daughters will come to glory through this, that God will use this, that he will submit this and make it work for the good of his people, for his glory, and for his church. That's my prayer. I hope that's your prayer as well. That as there is frustration for the church, that his purposes will go forward. So let, you, let your confidence be in God. Let's, let's review real, real quick. God doesn't need our help. We don't need to accommodate the gospel, to adjust the gospel. We don't need to, to make it seem more appealing. Brothers and sisters, what is better than what Jesus says in the beginning of Revelation? Behold, I was dead and now I'm alive evermore. And he offers that salvation to others. What's better than victory over sin and death? There is nothing better than that. We can't spice that up. We can't make that look prettier. We don't need to adjust the gospel. We don't need to accommodate the gospel. We just need to proclaim the gospel. God's will, God's way. And when we mess up, we need to rest in God's grace, be honest about it, walk in humble repentance, and know that God is gracious even in the midst of our failings. And we need to be reminded what erodes, that what takes away fear, faith, and what increases our faith, God's purposes and plans will prevail no matter what. No matter what we face or encounter, God's plans and purposes will prevail. Well, before we leave this passage, you'll notice that I left two verses off. Let's look at them quickly as a perfect segue into the sermon next week. It says this in verse 34. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Berah, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basmeth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Here we see the bitterness of Esau. We saw in the last chapter that, that Esau hated his birthright and was, was willing to trade it for a bowl of soup. Here we see that Esau still has no care or concern for the promises of God. Notice all the care that was, that was in place when Abraham sought to find a wife for his father Isaac. And here we see Esau taking two wives and he has no seen care or concern for the promises of God. He, he has no care about it at all. God's plans, God's promises. There's no faith in Esau. And it's the, it's the segue that takes us into the heartbreaking passage of next week where the fruit of that, of that lack of faith this comes to bear, and we see it so clearly in Genesis 27. So, brothers and sisters, as we move forward this week, let us be reminded God doesn't need our help, but he does use us. So let's do God's will, God's way. Let's be reminded that there is grace in our failings, and let's cling to that grace and rest on it. And let's be reminded that God's purposes will prevail. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would use it to build us up, Father, we ask that you bless us as a church, give fruit to our ministry for your glory. And when you do give fruit, may we give you glory quickly and seek none of it for ourselves. And may you bless us so that your name would be great and that all the nations would know of your saving power and your might. Give us faith to do your will your way. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.